does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Uh, let's head to the Payless Liquors Hotline. Greg Gregstraw joins us now. Obviously, ISC Sports Network, and uh, we'll spread a lot of fields here with Rake coming up. But let's begin with the Canaan catching story, Rake. Again, the five-star Purdue commit heading into his senior season at Brownsburg. He is now off to overtime elite, which is run by Damian Wilkins, former NBA player down in Georgia. We saw the Thompson brothers, Asar and Amen, just get drafted into the NBA out of overtime elite. Again, they have options there. You can elect the pro route or the college route. For now, it sounds like Kanan is certainly sticking with that college route. Uh, Rake, your level of surprise when you saw this? Not very. I'm disappointed, um, but but not very. Uh, there had been kind of rumblings that, uh, that that he and the family maybe is a little bit unhappy for whatever reason uh, with Brownsburg. Uh, there's a, there is tremendous talent there, but you just kind of got the feeling that, that maybe they felt he was bigger than that, which is kind of a shame. So uh, so he is moving on. Wish him the best of luck. Stinks for Brownsburg. Um, they were going to be one of the, of the better teams in the state because of whom their coach is and Steve Lynch. They're always going to be good. They're always going to be tough. Uh, but but they go from being a state finals contender to being you know just, just kind of a solid high school basketball team now. By the way, Kevin, uh, A.J. Foyt, seven straight in 1964 is the record, just to clarify that. Um, Greg, I, I wanted to, to piggyback kind of off what you were saying there, and, and I understand it. You know, for catchings, I, I, I totally get the fact that if you are somebody that sees yourself as, you know, a five-star, rising recruit, etc., it probably is in the best interest of your game to play – the best preparatory for professional level competition that you can and overtime elite probably provides that better than does say going up against Avon I mean I get it right but do we run the risk in your opinion of seeing kids make that kind of a move not to overtime elite but equivalent thereof that are in over their head in other words, that make a decision to bypass a traditional high school opportunity and everything that comes with that aside from basketball because someone is selling them a bill of goods that their game has more you know, potential than it does. I think that can happen from time to time. Uh, and you stated it well. That is not the case with Cannon Catchings. Kid can play. Um, there, there are some skills that he needs to develop. But there are some skills that he is blessed with um, that, that others are not going to have. Um, my point is this, is that the level of coaching and the level of competition that you get here in the state of Indiana, I don't think you need to be that guy that leaves here. Um, other places where the level of coaching and level of talent isn't as good as it is here, yeah, I get it. Uh, you know, going to an IMG, a Montverde, an Oak Hill, an Overtime Elite, you know, insert name of, of you know, Finley Prep, uh, a, a preparatory program, uh, La Lumiere here in this state. Um, again, that that's you're, – you're playing better basketball, but there's things that you miss out, I think, from the general human experience. And, frankly, I think from kind of how you are viewed 
for the next 25 to 30 to 35 years and beyond that I think are very negative with a move like this. And again, the, the, the coaching that he got at Brownsburg is fantastic. Steve's a heck of a high school basketball coach. Steve has experience, significant experience in college basketball. The staff that he has put together at Brownsburg is as good as any staff in the state. So, yeah, there are some advantages he will gain. I think there are some disadvantages in this decision as well. Rick, last one from me on the catching's front. It does seem like there is some probably necessary context around his situation. And I thought his mom was pretty honest with Kyle Nenrip yesterday in the Star and describing you know the traditional school maybe hasn't been you know Canaan's thing. And I think you know whether it's academically, whether it's emotionally, if you talk to people around the Brownsburg program, you know that there are other factors contributing to this than purely uh, you know basketball competition at overtime elite. Obviously, you would think that is the driving force of it. But to the earlier point you made about it being a bummer correct me if i'm wrong i think you guys were you know going to broadcast of kane and catchings jack benter game coming up this this season from a you know purdue commit standpoint and i brought this up to jake earlier it almost seems like rake if the state of indiana produces four top 100 kids in every class it, it seems like it'll be a miracle if three or four of them make it through their entire four years in indiana high schools Moving forward. You, just, you, you just don't need it. Um, and the event you're talking about is the Hall of Fame Classic. Um, and I'm, I'll be curious to see. We, we, there's been kind of a precedent set, and I, I think it'll, be a, be, it'll need to be initiated by the school. But when Jaden Ivey left Mishawaka Marion for, uh, you know, La Lumiere, I want to say four years ago, Mishawaka Marion was set to be in the Hall of Fame Classic. They voluntarily withdrew, uh, and Lafayette Jeff replaced them. Uh, and so the, the four teams that are set to be in the Hall of Fame Classic on the boys' side this year are Kokomo of Florida Badunga, Crispus Attucks, who maybe has their best team since they have reformed as a high school, um, and then you mentioned it, Brownstown and Brownsburg with the pair of Purdue commits. I, I don't know, knowing, knowing Steve and knowing Drew Tower, the AD over at Brownsburg, I think they'd like to stay in it and, and, and kind of fight and battle and, and show that, hey, I think we're, we're more than, than, than just a, a very talented player uh, in, in catchings. Um, but we'll see if they stay in that event. But, no, we, we would see Brownsburg a good deal on our schedule, and we'll see if that changes. And so this, Greg, for all intent and purposes, not that it probably wasn't already the case, but barring injury, this pretty much seals Mr. Basketball, right? I think Mr. Basketball was sealed and delivered already. Uh, Catchings was going to be a, a very good runner-up, if not Jack Benner. Um, but but no, the, the award was already Flory Badungas. Uh, and, and I say this knocking on wood, fingers and toes crossed. Barring something of, of, of an injury, it's Mr. Basketball belongs to Flory Badunga. And so I've heard with Badunga, who I've not seen play a lot, Greg, you have. Greg Rakestra is our guest on the Payless Sugars Hotline. With Badunga, what I've heard about him, you tell me if accurate, uh, wonderful player, obviously, you know, all the bells and whistles, all the potential in the world. But at this point, more ad- from a collegiate standpoint, further ahead of the game, probably defensively than he is in terms of versatility offensively. Is that a fair analysis of him? Very much so. He is a power five level defender, rebounder, shot blocker, teammate person. Uh, his offensive game is still a work in progress. Uh, he is a good passer out of the post, but he is really a, a, a – he's not a pick-and-pop big. He is a rim-running big at this point. 
Uh, his field goal percentage at Kokomo last year was 81% because the majority of his shots came from above the rim uh, on dunks. He has worked to develop his offensive game. Um, but again, that's something that you know college coaches will feel they can continue to work on in the year or two that he would play college basketball. Because again, I think every other skill set he has translates to the pros so easily. Okay, Greg Rakeshaw is with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. We are less than two weeks away from the Colts heading up to Grand Park for training camp. Rake, I'm not sure if you caught the Jim Mercer comments earlier this week. I don't know if that was the day you were filling in or not, but basically, you know, Jim Mercer said something to the effect of he has a chance. I, I don't know when you hear that he has a chance if you interpret that as he has a chance to be ready day one of camp the start of the regular season he has a chance to play again at all um where are you at on the Shaquille Leonard and I guess just like level of overall worry about his impact to the football team because Zaire Franklin you know had a great great season last year in replacing him but Bobby Okereke is no longer here very concerned is my level um and and you knew that with the contract Zaire had signed before last year and the way that Zaire played that Bobby was not going to come back. You know, it was almost reminiscent of the Bill Polian days where he was like, there's certain guys you knew, hey, that guy is not getting re-signed. It's not because anything the guy did wrong. It's just there's X amount in the budget, and right now that budget is busted by Shaquille Leonard. Uh, and so my level of concern on the impact of what Shaq is going to be for this football team is significant uh, because I'm not sure that really anybody knows exactly how is he, he is going to respond as he has been so plagued by injuries the last two years, able to play through it uh, and still be a playmaker, even if about oh, 75 80% two years ago, and then barely seeing the field and being a liability when he was on the field the limited times he was a year ago. So my level of concern would be significant about what number 53 can be able to do for this football team uh, and, and forget what training camp looks like in two weeks. Everything for him is about September the 10th. What sort of shape will he be in both physically and mentally? More starts this year for Gardner Minshew or Shaquille Leonard? Uh, oh, oh, oh. I would hope Shaquille Leonard. Um, I would still lean towards Shaquille Leonard, and that has nothing to do with, with Shaq. That has something to do with, um, I think, every opportunity will be given to Anthony Richardson uh, to play as many games as possible. Greg, would you really read like the precedent of tea leaves? Greg Rakestra, our guest here, in terms of player injuries for the Colts and the way that they answer the questions or address it. And I'm gonna, uh, I'm talking about Jim Irsay, who I think is pretty candid, and, and I've yep. always appreciated his transparency in that. Right, um, but when he was asked about Shaquille Leonard, his answer to me based on precedent, was essentially saying, we don't really have a, a real clear idea here. I, this could be, he may have a chance to go by the beginning of the year, or it might be mid-October and we're having this same conversation. That was my interpretation. What say you? I'm, I'm in the same boat. Again, I, I think it is a giant question mark. It is a great unknown. I think that there will be lots of, of side work and work that we do not see in terms of the open practices. Uh, and I think the Colts, and understandably so, will play it very close to the vest 
as to exactly what his status is going to be come for September the 10th. Rick, you had a great tweet earlier this week. Um, I had a pennant up on my wall when I was growing up of the first ever game at Victory Field uh, 27 years ago. Is that the number this week? Uh, That's correct. Your tweet said you were on the field. Fill me in a little bit more on, on, on Rake's duties and what you recall about that first game ever at Victory Field. So this is a great story. So in the summer of 1996, I was 19 years old. I was between my sophomore and junior years of college, and I did a news internship with Channel 13. Not a sports internship, a news internship. And it was great because I got to do a lot because it was the summer of the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. So like 13 sent half of their staff, um, you know, down that direction. I got to like assist in writing the 5:30 newscast on a daily basis. I also learned I did not want to do television news for a living, um, and that wasn't because I had a bad experience. It just wasn't me. It confirmed, hey, you're a sports dork. You know, stick in that lane and, and be over there. But what Channel 13 was great at doing back then is they would take their newscast live on the not like reporters, but like everybody take, take the entire set. And, and, and do their show live. So I was on the field the final day of Bush Stadium, July 3rd of 1996. Uh, I specifically remember Bob Gregory using the old uh, wooden scoreboard in left field. And they, instead of like the American Association standings, they had like the high temperatures that day in like the other <laughs> seven cities in, in the American Association. And the Nashville Sounds had a bounty on Bob's head as to who could try to hit him or the scoreboard in batting practice. Um, then eight days later, uh, the opener against the Oklahoma City 89ers, I was on the field um, up until the 6 o'clock newscast. And because at that time, I was two years removed from being a fairly decent high school baseball player. Uh, John Stair had played a little baseball at Gannon College, now Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania. My job was to hit fungos to John um, for um, you know they, they were he, you know they were trying to show him catching things and 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 being a part of batting practice as part of a package they were doing. So on the opening day, we of need a video field, of you, Rake, and this and this fungo. There's no there's no video of me. There's video of John somewhere in the 13 archives catching pop up after pop up. I'm the one hitting him to him. <laughs> so so uh, who did Greg? Because I have what I believe to be a correct trivia question here. So who did the Indianapolis Indians play in the final game at Bush Stadium. Do you recall? The Nashville, the Nashville Sounds. Okay. And then they played, you said, Oklahoma City to open Victory Field, right? Correct, yes. And then after that, did they play Nashville? Uh, they would have played, I mean, in the, in the American Association days, they, there were only seven teams. You basically were by 24 times. So it was, at that time, would have been Omaha, Nashville, New Orleans, um, and Oklahoma City in the West. I am almost the- certain. The reason I say it, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm almost certain of this. I don't remember the guy's name. Yep. I'm 99% certain, Greg, that the the guy that hit the final home run at Bush Stadium is the same player that hit the very first home visiting home run in Victory Field. It's well, Lee Stevens hit the first one at Victory Field, but I don't think he would have been with Nashville. I know the last base hit at Bush is Pokey Reese. You know, bottom of the ninth, Indians lost that game. Indians lost, I want to say, 5-3 to the 89ers in the first game at Victory Field. Because I actually, I was on the field during the day. Then I left to go run the board over at 1260 for the opening night. Um, So so Lee Stevens, you said, 
hit the first one you said? Lee, Lee Stevens has the first home run in Victory Field. I forget who has the last homer at Bush Stadium. Was Stevens with the Indians, though? Stevens was not with – no, he's with Oklahoma City. He was a visiting player. Okay. Because he later played with the Indians, right? <clears throat> right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Correct. Because he was – that was during the last stint of the Reds being an affiliate of uh, – the Indianapolis and the affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds, and he later played with the Reds, I believe. Rick, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, the event tonight, North-South All-Star Game, right? You're on the call? Yep. Correct. I, I am almost a little surprised that the game still goes on considering how you know colleges try to kind of get a hold of their incoming uh, high school players. Uh, certainly football, there is obviously the physical component to it with these guys starting training camp here pretty soon. Um, it's a little bit different than basketball where you do it in you know early June. Obviously the physical toll is different and certainly the basketball season doesn't start until later in the fall. Uh, but the North-South All-Star Game still operating as usual in Decatur Central. Is that the location? That is correct on, on both fronts. And, you know, the, the, the IFCA, the Indian Football Coach Association, uh, over the last 10 years, you basically have not gotten the Division One kids because those kids are, are in camp. Um, the Indiana State kids oftentimes will play in this game. Kurt Mallory will send the kids over to play. You know, the D2, D3 NAIA kids uh, also end up playing in this game because they don't report to camp until early August. And occasionally – at that level, you'll see true freshmen play. But a lot of times, because of the physical differences you're playing against 22- and 23-year-olds, those kids are often redshirting anyway. Um, and so you, it really is an all-star game for a lot of kids that are going to Uindy and Marion and Wabash and Franklin, and et cetera, and things like that. You could have the option of playing this game, say, in December at Lucas Oil. Uh, but at that point, you would run into losing kids that are basketball players or wrestlers and you couldn't have kind of the, the, the week-long camp experience that you have now, even though the kids really report on Tuesday at this point and practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then go play the game on Friday. So the IFCA guys have elected to, hey, let's, let's keep this as a summertime game. It's still a really good level of football. And I would think we're going to see four or 5,000 people at Decatur Central Night because the, 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 the community support for any kid that makes this game always tends to be really, really big. Gosh, I'm starting to look at the calendar, Rake. Uh, is it four weeks, five weeks away? It is always th- this game. A couple of years it was six, but most years it is five weeks. So we are 35 days away from the start of the high school football season in Indiana. Not from a practice standpoint, from a games played standpoint. Crazy. God, you just blink. You just blink, and all of a sudden it is here. Rake, have a great call tonight. As always, thanks for the time here on this Friday morning, man. You got it, fellas. Jake Cap in Toronto. All right, thanks, Greg. I think Tony East is at from a morale standpoint, back from Vegas. Uh, not thrilled about being in his last name, back east, right? Oh, look at that. Yeah, that's what I do. Nothing says the 15th hour of the week like that joke right there from Jake. I'm sure the first time Tony East has ever heard a directional joke his way. Tony, you will you things d- are going south here? Tony, will you, first off, will you save us? Second off, uh, will you describe what the Vegas Summer League scene is like? I'm talking in the arena, outside the arena, on the strip. If it is, you know, feel free to share anything that you would like. I know you're newly engaged, so you know, maybe walk a walk a fine line with that one. But I have obviously never been to the Vegas Summer League, and I'm particularly curious what life is like during that time out there. 
Well, Kevin, let me follow, let me answer your question with a question. Is Victor Wembanyama playing in the game right that second or not playing in the game right Ooh. that second? Okay, uh, feel free to share both of those atmospheres and experiences. Well, I'd actually describe the Wembanyama game similar to when Peyton Manning was the Colts quarterback, except it was kind of the inverse, right? When the Colts had the ball, dead silent in the RCA Dome. They wanted the Colts to run their offense. When the other team had the ball, very loud, disruptive, right? That was part of the fun of the atmosphere. It was the total opposite in the Thomas and Mack Center. When Iwan Banyama had the ball, it was nuts. People would stand up. There was cheering. It was excitement. Everything, he, he, he could do one dribble and pass. The people would do an ah. And when he was out of the game or didn't have the ball, nobody cared. People got up and walked around. <laughs> <laughs> it was silent. Like, it, it, was, it was kind of ridiculous that it even was the same place. It was insane. Like, for me to actually get a media seat to watch his games, I had to get to Thomas and Mack Center in the first quarter of the game before just to have a media seat. It was ridiculous um, how invested people were in his games, but it was really cool to be a part of them. It's, a, it's an interesting experience. Uh, it's a lot of basketball junkies in one place at the same time. Like, I, it's the most, like, random jerseys I've ever seen. I saw a guy who already had a, uh, a Thompson Twins jersey that was cut in half. So it's half a SARS Pistons jersey and half a men's Rockets jersey. Like, that's how to describe the gym. And Vegas in general is just popping in the middle of summer. There's a lot going on, and the strip was busy everywhere. Uh, I'm a casino guy, so I had a great time, even though that was my first time there. That is how I would describe the vibe if I could. Well, that was your first time in Vegas? Yeah, my whole life, yeah. You know, the, the one thing that's a total buzzkill now, Tony, about Vegas, and I get why they did it, when you walk the strip now you've got to it's it gets a little laborious right you got to walk and you go up the steps and you got to like walk over the rampways to walk to the other yeah. side and you know kind of zigzag the whole thing right it's like intimidating too because you're zigzagging and like every stair is like a different color than the stair before and that's like good lord can i just like you know what you know what vegas needs is the indy airport like moving walkways to get around that would save a lot of time. now the difference between vegas coming the end. difference between <laughs> vegas and the indy airport is that in vegas you can get something to eat after 6 p.m so that's good right um, actually, and you don't have a bunch of actually, uh nightly business cards in the vegas carry around oh yeah that's right Go ahead, Tony. I was, terrified in, I was terrified in that airport. I was going to be delayed because there's like so many slot machines and stuff. I was like, this is not a place I want to be distracted or bored. I want to get in and out of here as fast as possible. There's so many noises in that airport. Yeah. So yeah. many noises. Arch uh, Schleister joining us on the Payless Sugars Hotline. <laughs> um, hey, Tony, real quick on Victor Webb and Miyama, I'm curious your thought on this. You know, I watched a little bit, but I didn't watch him play, you know, probably as closely as you did or people out at Summer League. Does he look like he is ready to go right now and be like immediate front run impact, or is it more so you can absolutely see where the skill is there, but there is a lot of development yet to be had? Yeah, I think defensively he's ready to have the impact. Like it, people don't even go close to him, and he covers. Like he, he, if he gets beat at the foul line, he just does like one drop step and he's back in the play. Right, like he's so huge and he can just catch up to everything, and his, his wingspan's insane. So defensively, yeah, he's ready now. Like Sabonis will punk him a bunch. Like all these dudes who are stronger than him will embarrass him. But defensively, he's going to be awesome right away, I think. And that's going to be the thing that makes him shine. He'll probably have like a bajillion three, four, five block games. But yeah, offensively, he definitely needs some work. Like that gimmicky one-legged three that he did in France all the time to draw fouls, like that's not going to work in the NBA. His dribble moves don't create a ton of space just yet. Like 
his stride's so long that it looks like he teleports, so he'll, he'll be fine. And, like, he'll, he'll probably average, I don't know, 12 to 15 points a game. But he, he definitely needs some some work on offense. His jumper's still pretty raw, and he can't really pass that much yet. But, yeah, I think defensively right away he's going to stand out immediately. The great Tony East joining us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. You can listen to him locked on Pacers to the podcast, writes for SI.com. Uh, Tony... Let me ask this question to start, and then I uh, then I have a little bit of follow up. What is Andrew Nemhard's best position in the NBA? Oh gosh, it, it's probably point guard, right? Like, is 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 not great as that is for the Pacers to hear. I mean, he was awesome running the show out there from a pace control perspective, from a game management perspective, from a passing perspective. Even last year in summer league, he was a great passer. He showed it down the stretch of last season, and. Yeah, that that's a little awkward for his fit with the Pacers specifically, but he is certainly better at that spot to me than he is offensively, especially at the off-ball guard spot. I would agree with that. Now, the question that I think you play off of with that is obviously what does that mean for TJ McConnell? Because you know when you start to map out the first and second unit, Tony, I mean there is like a half a dozen names that you've just got to figure out spots and roles at the two, the three, and I guess the four. I mean. Matherin, Heald, Neesmith, Wara, Shepard, Toppin, Walker. I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting others as well. So, given that, how should TJ McConnell be handled of a 31-year-old that unquestionably brings value to you, but the age, the contract, I think you have to at least ask the question internally of, all right, Andrew Nemhard's a part of our core for the next, you know, hopefully a handful of years and beyond. TJ McConnell is not. How should the Pacers handle that? And what would even return look like for TJ McConnell? Yeah, that is the, the tricky part of squeezing out those you know, those positions of the rotation. Like Halburton, like the backcourt specifically, right? Just going through those three positions. Halburton's obviously going to play. Bruce Brown, Buddy Heald, they're going to play. Ben Matherin's going to play. So if Nemard plays off-ball again, all of a sudden Aaron Neesmith's not playing anymore. And last year, they loved him. Rick loved him. His defense was huge for the team. You know, he's still a valuable young piece. He's only 23, right? Like, that that's a tough guy to all of a sudden just not play. So the way to play him would be to, to do what you just said, have Andrew Nemhard be your backup point guard. He's suddenly in the rotation. He can play next to Halliburton, as proven last year. But then McConnell's not playing, despite, you know, a career year last year in terms of scoring and efficiency and all sorts of stuff. So they, they, they do have a crowded backcourt, and that would be the argument for moving – T.J. McConnell at age 31 is that he might just not even have a role, right? And all of a sudden, his value to the Pacers is less than it would be to another team where he might might actually play. And his contract is technically not expiring, but it's only like a partial guarantee next year, so it's sort of an expiring contract. So, you know, there's reasons to consider trading him this year as compared to later in the year and right now and stuff like that. So, uh, it would make sense why the Pacers would think about it. Um, he is currently their only bet with with George Hill and James Johnson kind of uh, still not on the team. So there's certainly a lot of value he provides there. But I think just given where this team is headed and the crowded nature of their backcourt, it makes sense why they would, would listen to offers on him and why, you know, I'm, maybe we'll get to this, but why these reports are coming out about the Suns potentially having interest in him. Tony, what's the latest that you found yourself out in the Vegas Strip? Uh, like three, three thirty. Okay. Uh, who's the most random, famous Damn, person? That's like six Eastern back here. That's yeah, that's, that's awesome. impressive. That's the. Th- I mean, Vegas has no. You got no clocks. They're pumping oxygen in. You know, you go into a fat burger at midnight. I mean, it's all good. Um, 
most famous or, or most random famous person that you ran into or basketball related or not? Like in a casino or just out walking around? I mean, like half the NBA is at every casino. It feels like that's hard to pinpoint uh, number one, one famous person. I saw Jerry West on the strip once. Um, he also sat right in front of me at a game, so that's why he's, he's fresh on the brain. It, it, it's like, it, it feels like everybody's famous out there for some reason, just because like every person is wearing a team branded shirt and you're like looking them up and down to figure out who they are if you know them. So. Uh, it, it's hard to truly answer. Maybe my answer is Tyrese Halliburton, the two hundred sixty million dollar man who I saw several times. Now, when you saw him, like, was he just hanging out? Uh, I don't saw him at, at games, but on the strip specifically, yeah, Jerry West was just hanging out. Um, it, it's just it's fascinating because everybody's kind of doing their own thing, but everybody doing their own thing is doing the same thing just at different places, basically, right? Figure out some try. Everybody says the place they eat out there is like secretive and hidden and no one knows about it but like you, you see like 30 people there so um, it, it's interesting how everybody thinks their their Vegas experience was super different it felt like a lot of them were really similar. I went to the final four in San Antonio once and everywhere I everywhere I went literally every single for like three days every single place that I went I turned around and Bob Huggins was standing right there it was the weirdest <laughs> thing ever like like I, uh, like one room he's fired and the next one he's not and then he's resigned and he's not it was the weirdest thing ever he was everywhere though <laughs> we went out to Fremont even and I was like oh this is far enough I'm sure that it'll be you know less NBA yeah that's old like, Vegas right yes yeah it's like a whole that whole street of brightness and in, in your faceness and I was like oh this is far enough from the strip this won't be as as busy, you know, there's still NBA people everywhere and craziness. It's it's quite the town, especially for Vegas. It, it was like made for me that week. I was just going from fun thing to fun thing for five days. Tony East with us here, back to reality to say the least, and I'm sure thrilled <laughs> to be waking up with us here at nine Eastern as he was just stumbling back from his casino and carrying all his chips um, with him. Uh, Tony Benedict Matherin, obviously a lot of certainly a lot of comments after his first two games. Inefficiency would probably define it. Uh, game two, I would say, a decent amount of playmaking that offers a bit of intrigue. You know, as I look at him into year two, Tony, I'm going to be fascinated to watch like. A dude that is clearly most comfortable just attacking and trying to score. I mean, he is, that is what he is made to do and what he loves to do. And his balance in trying to do that, but then also become a little bit more of a passer, a playmaker, distribute the ball. One pass can lead to a bucket. One pass could lead to a hockey assist. Like, watching him find that balance within his game, Tony... I think is going to be one of the more interesting storylines for this season. What do you make of Matherin's, you know, game evolving in year two? Yeah, one hundred percent. Like I think that's a big storyline for the whole Pacers season in general because yeah, they've got a star, but you need a co-star or one B or whatever. And if that's Matherin this year, what is he going to show the Pacers beyond scoring the ball? Right, we know he can do that. He did that in Vegas even with his inefficiency, and I mostly don't care about inefficiency in summer league. But he's got to show something else to me. Like He could be a playmaker or a knockdown shooter or a great cutter off of the ball, right? something else that will really elevate his fit with Tyrese Halberton. And I believe that he can defend you know, better every year. He works on that, and he's got the body to do it. And he defended well in summer league to his credit, but – 
you know, he had, even with the, in the game, he had six assists that you just mentioned where some of those playmaking flashes were a little more on display. Like, he had a couple nice dump-off passes in the lane and was making the extra pass. His first assist of the game, he just swung it to Ben Shepard for an open corner three. It's like, even just that is is, is important for him to be making that extra read. But um, he has still had a few moments that game where he would drive into three guys and, and, and you know, turn it over or throw up a crummy shot. And some of that's just like, he thinks he can get to the cup and draw a foul or score because that's what he's born to do, and he's very good at it. That's important. Like, his free throw rate as a rookie was ridiculous, and he was top 15 in the league, and, you know, that's something he should pursue and continue to try to do. But at the same time, he's got to you know, he's got to have more vision on that. You know, if he's surrounded by three guys, he's got to give it up. And part of the reason he's guarded by three guys is the defense knows if they send three at him, they'll, they're probably going to stop or force a bad shot. So as good as he is as a scorer and getting to the line and, all those things he showed as a rookie, he's got to add one or two more elements to his offensive game to be fully fitting in a team setting, even though he definitely is already talented and good. Tony, since you were just in Vegas, I'll put this in wagering terms. (laughs) Uh, If you had to put a wager on it before you'd left Vegas, you get to write down on a sheet of paper a yes-no answer, put it in an envelope at one of the casinos, and then if you are correct, you get to go back and collect on it. Is the roster complete between now and opening day? I'd probably say no, but I don't think anything left that happens is going to be exceedingly significant. Um, I mean, my my lazy answer could just be that they'll sign somebody to a two-way, but the actual purpose of your question, like, I think there's a little bit of league holdup because of Dane and James Harden, like, even some decent free agents are waiting to see you know, is there going to be minutes in Miami? Is there going to be minutes in Portland or Philly or LA or whatever? And if not, they got to take money somewhere. And once that's done, then trade stuff really ramps up. And like, you know, last year the Aiton thing happened. I want to say on the 16th, which would be tomorrow or no Sunday, comparatively. And the Donovan Mitchell trade happened in September. You know, like there's always stuff that happens later. And for a team like the Pacers, who's got couple log gems to, to think about sorting out. It's definitely possible they're done. Like, the roster makes sense. They have the exact number of required contracts. Like, maybe they are just done, but it, w- it definitely wouldn't surprise me if they did something else. And because there's going to be options to do it, uh, I probably would have said they're not quite done yet if I had to put a slip on it. But um, that's, a, that's a tricky one just because it's it slowed down so much that it almost feels like there might be nothing else. What would make you say yes to a Pascal Siakam deal? Uh, the, the, yeah, the obvious thing is the contract, right? If he says, yeah, I'll, I'll sign an extension immediately on Pond being traded, then, yeah, you, you suddenly feel way more comfortable with that. If you're the Pacers, like, I, I, I figured out in the last couple of days hearing a lot of chatter about this that I am significantly higher on his fit with the Pacers than it seems like a lot of other people are. Like, he is so good, right? All NBA Does it, doesn't he need the ball, though, a ton, Tony? And, like, you know, obviously you want Tyrese orchestrating things. I guess that's where a little bit of my concern would be. I think the Pacers need another playmaker-type guy with the ball. So that's Fair. part of why I think I'm, I'm a little higher on the fit. And he can play three, he can play four, he can defend, score, pass, rebound. Like, he, he's pretty good. Um, he definitely isn't, like, the, the part that might be clunky is if Halburn has the ball all the time. He's not, like, an amazing shooter. They still, like, won it 33%, I think, last year or about that for his last five years. But, like, like those kind of talents aren't available very often. And stylistically it would be a wonderful fit with the Pacers. You need guys at that talent level to take the steps they want to take. So, you know, if, if 
he is truly available and and he would be willing to add years to his contract in Indiana, then, yeah, you really got to consider it. For a one-year rental, obviously, the price goes way down. And do you even want to do that? Like, what's the point of that if you're the Pacers? You know, if you think you could re-sign him, maybe. But with a, with an extension, uh, yeah, you've got to really think about that because he fits really well and he's super talented. But also with an extension, the price goes way up. And then you got to think about that. And the Raptors have been very hard negotiators for – since the Masai Ujiri regime took over there. So uh, it's tricky to kind of figure out the machinations of that, just given Toronto's situation. But I think he'd be an awesome fit with the Pacers team if, if he'd be willing to stay longer than a year. Tony, do you think that Halliburton and Benedict Matherin can grow alongside one another on the court and continue to have – like a symbiotic relationship or are they two guys that that one of the two of them is going to need the ball in their hands more than the other and that's going to I don't mean create friction in terms of them being bad guys but just on court create challenges yeah I think they can grow together certainly like the the famous guard duos of however recent you want to go with like Steph and Clay. Steph became really like the best off-ball mover in the NBA and obviously these guys are both in the unbelievable shooters but became the best off ball mover in the nba and clay became a great putter and spot up guy and so even though they both were awesome with the ball they fit really well together and so that's kind of why i think a big focus for matherin this year is going to be a lot of that extra stuff when he doesn't have the ball the shooting the cutting all that kind of stuff because halburn already is a very good shooter and a decent off ball mover and just understands the game so well that he's good and in most situations, you know, even Damon Lillard and T.J. McCollum, like that team made a conference finals. Those two guys were both significantly better with the ball and not the best off-ball movers, but paired pretty well together. Now, they, they had a clear ceiling cap and had you know some, some unlucky injuries and, and not great teams along the way, and that's kind of a, a cautionary tale of the two guards that, that are you know not perfect fits, but even that team worked pretty well. Like You could go through a couple more like Harden and Westbrook, for example, um, that, that guard can fit together if they have the right skill set. And I think that uh, Halliburton and Matherin certainly can, especially if the right talent is around them. But you know, a, a couple more things to come both there was. Like even Halliburton could stand to become a little bit better off the ball, and Matherin's got to become a little bit better of a catch-and-shoot guy for it to be like perfectly symbiotic. But yeah, I definitely think they can fit together. We even saw signs of it last year. Like the, I think the Patriots' net rating with both of them on the court was, was positive, like above zero. Uh, so the, the, it's certainly not a perfect fit, but I definitely think they can symbiotically grow together. All right, Tony, last one. And again, Tony East is with us here, covers the Pacers, Locked On Pacers, the podcast, writes for them for SI.com, back from Summer League in Vegas. Um, let's just say the hypothetical. Halliburton, of course, is a starter. Turner, obviously, is a starter. Let's say Matherin is your starter at the three. Um, the decisions at the two, are you going offense or defense? And by that... Buddy Heald or Bruce Brown at the two, and then at the four, are you going Obi Toppin or Jarris Walker? Where, where do you sit on the offense versus defense if it's a simple enough to kind of boil it down to that? I would personally go Jarris at the four. That one seems easier to me. I think I'm just not as high. Like, Obi's good, but um, I think he hasn't shown enough to me to, to walk into a starting spot after a trade like that. Uh, even though he'll definitely play more in Indiana than he did in New York. I get why he would start. I get his fit with Halliburton being much better than his fit without him for the Pacers specifically, and maximizing that pairing in terms of their time together on the court makes a lot of sense for the Pacers. He's good, uh, but I think Walker, especially like a guy you want 
to explore how well he fits with their young core and see what he can grow into with this team. I, I would be I would be leaning into starting him. Um, but I would, you know, like Mather and last year, I would get it if they didn't. Uh, the two's a lot harder, though. You know, Buddy Heald, that spacing is so valuable to the rest of the team. And he also pairs better with Halliburton. And, and honestly, every player on the team knows. I need to stop making that point if I'm being honest. But, you know, the spacing, I think, is so valuable for everybody else. Whereas Bruce Brown, you're getting that much-needed point-of-attack defense. And if you're going with Toppin, Matherin, you need the defense a lot, right? You're going to need somebody who can guard on the perimeter. So if Toppin's a starting four, I think Bruce Brown is definitely the choice at the two. If if Jairus Walker's at the four, I think you've got a better shot going with Buddy Heald. But personally, I think, given the contracts handed out, given the way the draft went, uh, my choices would be Bruce Brown and Jairus Walker. Uh, but I think that, that, that finding the right synergy is going to be really tough, right? They have a lot of guys deserving of minutes at, at various spots. I know Summer League... I mean, literally, it's probably like a two out of ten in terms of how much it can actually predict legitimate NBA. I, I get it, right? But did Ben Shepard at all look like a guy that still offensively was a bit of a stretch? I know that he's a good shooter, and then we find out, you know, defensively is really where he, I think, impressed some people. But did he look comfortable to you? No, he didn't. And, and projecting from summer league's hard and, and kind of funny. Now, I actually laugh every year this happens, right? Matherin was amazing as a summer league rookie, and everybody was so high in his future and then had some crummier moments this year. Now everybody's, like, down on his future. It's like, which summer league matters more, his first one or his second one? Um, but Shepard specifically, yeah, he, he was invisible in the first game, right? Like, he had four shots in one point, and his defense was kind of rough. And then he was awesome in the second game, four for seven from Dave. He said he was working on the defensive stuff. He was clearly more impactful in the right spots, making plays. And then back to struggling again last night. So I can't tell if he can't figure out how to, you know, how to get his shots and get to his spots. Like at Belmont, he was more so the guy. Like it was easy for him to know when the ball was coming and figure out where to get where the plays were, you know, designed for him and get open and stuff like that. So I think that was a lot more comfortable for him in a way that isn't the case. Right now, I think defensively, though, I'd like to see a little bit more from him because he certainly looks like he's got a longer way to go. All right, what's the thing you miss the most about Vegas? <laughs> uh, I'm a big craps guy, so I, I definitely miss playing craps and not having to drive out to Shelbyville to do it. I, I don't understand craps. There's just a bunch of people standing around a table yelling and one guy with like a little rake. Is that right? You get some yeah, great energy around the table. <laughs> I like the energy part. I like uh, a bunch of strangers mostly having the same goal and hopes for every single throw. I think it's fun. And, yeah, that's, that's the game. There is actually no strategy to it. It's just whoever yells the loudest. F- okay. They like actually. So is your bachelor Tony. party going to be in Shelbyville? Did I just hear that? <laughs> uh, no. No, it is not. Okay. No. Anderson, maybe. You can go to the Quarry building <laughs> on the downtown square in Shelbyville. It really does exist. Uh, Tony, last thing. If you can even do this in 30 seconds, I don't know if it's possible. Kidding aside, as if I'm a kindergartner, explain craps to me. <laughs> okay. Well, it depends what your first bet is. If you're betting for or against the pass line, and that means you're betting for or against the person with the dice to get a 7 or 11, and if they don't get 7 or 11, then that number is uh, now the number that you would like to see rolled again before 7 or 11, unless you're betting against the pass line. Then you want to see 7 or 11 before that number, with 7 being the most likely roll. But almost everybody bets on the pass line. It's very frowned upon to bet against it. Uh, there's a lot, other, a lot of other bets you can make along the way, but big picture, that is the best I can describe. Okay, so I have two dice, and I throw them, and it lands on an 8. 
you are then wagering on whether or not I get an eight or I get a seven eleven. Eight before seven eleven, correct, and you can bet on every number at any time. And there's field bets and hard hard numbers and all this stuff that make it different than that. And eight would be great because eight is decently likely, and you get less payout for eight, but it's still. You know, uh, one that people will be happy with to see if you get it around the first one. That's a pretty good explanation without a table in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> on that end. Uh, Tony, great work. Boy, you certainly covered it all with us here. Um, I know it's been a long <laughs> week for you, so I appreciate you also making time for us here to round out the week, man. Have a great weekend. Always fun. Always fun. Thanks for having me. Kevin, I love this. Uh, Ryan from Kalamazoo, who is one of your students at IU, is shadowing today. High energy from Ryan. He is feeling confident the Hoosiers are going to shock the world and knock off Ohio State in football this year. Yeah, I don't know if he feels more confident about proposing to his girlfriend in the next six months or (laughs) Trace Jackson Davis's brother. Ryan, you got a girlfriend? Yep, getting married. Okay. Not a lot of college freshmen would would drop a line. I guess a sophomore now would drop a line like that. Um, Jake, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the week, but if you had to he play, he said they met at a date party. Now is that is is that like the through her sorority, correct? Yes. So a date party is just a party where you go and look for dates. Is that it? Like is you Bob Eubanks there? You huh? You get invited. So she invited you directly, or you just were invited like with a big group of dudes? Um, I invited myself. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Invited I like that. myself. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, go- I- the goal is for a successful date night, but avoid the hobby that Philip Rivers has seemingly accomplished at a very high level well, as child number 10 on the way for the Rivers family here, it sounds like. Um, Tyrese Halliburton made an appearance on Paul George's podcast earlier this week. I know full well there will be a section of Pacers fans that are like, nope, I'm not going to listen. I I don't want to. It's, you know, Paul, I still hate Paul. He did this. He did that. He said this is the softball game. Fine. Um, But I do think if you can kind of separate yourself from that, I thought it was a really good, um, I mean, a long, like two-hour podcast, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it's clear that both of them have a relationship together, and that you know Tyrese had you know texted Paul about uh, Indiana, about the franchise, and certainly as Paul acknowledges at times throughout the podcast, things have changed, but there's still kind of some core values that are still there with the Pacers franchise. We're gonna play a clip from that podcast again. This is Paul George's podcast with Tyrese Halliburton. This one centers around Paul's time in Indiana. So again, from earlier this week, Tyrese Halliburton on the Paul George podcast. Indy going up. I see y'all. <laughs> Big Indy. P, what, you know, let's talk about it, your time when you was up in the Indy, though. I enjoyed it, yeah. I enjoyed my time in Indy. Okay, I want to talk to you about how, how hard was it to get being in a low-market team mm-hmm. at the time? How hard was it to get players that was good to come to play for y'all? Like, how, like, like who was it? I think Anthony Davis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it – was, the problem was is because it's 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 and I don't want it to sound bad, but it's it's Indiana. Like so when people would go, you know, free agency, they go out west immediately. Right. Phoenix, Lakers, you know, Clippers, you know, everybody's gonna go to the big destinations, right? For us it was just like, all right, now how do we cycle through whoever else that wasn't picked to go to these bigger markets? You know what I mean? And that was just the challenge we had. And but I think when like guys went there, they was like, oh, the culture they love, the training staff, like, you know, Carl and Josh. Yeah. 
since I've been in the league, there's one of the best trainers I ever had in my in my career. They keep people healthy and, and like, you know, guys will come in and be like, yo, y'all training staff is, is crazy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, bro, this was hurting on me. This, like, that gone now. And it didn't, at the time, I didn't realize it. Like, because I was, that was, Indy was the only team I knew. But at the time, it was like, you know, it, it that's that's what the talk was. But then, um, like, I think just from our culture standpoint, same thing when guys came over, it was just different than what they used to. And I loved it. It's probably different now from, from you know, the, the, the culture that you guys have now, the team. But when I was there, it was like, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say it was military, but it was damn near close. Like, but like, would you say that's the cult? Like, that's the culture you walked into. That's like, the culture I walked into. Right. So it was like that when, like, right when you got there. <clears throat> right when I got there, and I loved it because I'm a person that deals that that does well with structure. So I love the culture of yeah. like. I mean, I don't know. They they still fine for like late on treatment Everything. time. Everything. I love Everything, that. Everything, bro. If I'm, I be, I be getting so mad at Josh. I be like, you know, I'm 30 minutes away from the gym. So sometimes traffic might hit or something. Or, right. or I, I, I stopped and I started talking to talking to somebody on my way to treatment. But like uh-huh. our treatment times would be knocked down. Like, all right, 8.45, 9 o'clock, 9.15. Yeah. Like I walk in there, if I'm at 8.45 treatment, I walk in there at 8.47. He don't say, they just say, what up? Like everything's sweet. Slip. When I get to my locker, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> What is that? So fine. I'm like, oh no, nah, this is crazy. You yeah. Late for two minutes. Two man. minutes, bro. You late for two minutes, and and you could be in a building, but if you ain't in that room on that table at eight forty five on that table, you're How fine. much is the fine? Do you want to disclose that or? Are you- <laughs> <laughs> See, I I would agree with you there that that's Paul George really endorsing the franchise in a lot of ways. I I, I think that <clears throat> I, I do believe that the comment of there, – there was definitely friction with Paul George and Larry Bird about Paul George having to play the power forward position. And Paul didn't make the decisions around here. That, that, that quote will always jump out. I think it was a little bit overblown when Paul George – the perception was that he went to the Pacers and said, hey, I talked to Anthony Davis and he's willing to come here. Let's make a trade. And the Pacers said, nah, we can't do that. I don't think that's exactly how that went down. But the reality is this, Kevin. The Pacers put a lot of money into the St. Vincent, and I, I'm not sure the exact name of it, but the, the facility they have. I've gone through it. I've gone through and seen all of it. I mean, everything from the cafeteria area to the the workout pools to the waiting pools to the, the treatment rooms, all of it. And it's state-of-the-art. And for the NBA, it's state-of-the-art. Yeah, certainly. And – the one challenge that the Pacers have, and it's the same challenge that, quite frankly, Milwaukee has and Detroit has, and I truly believe this, I don't know that it's as much the perception of market. And don't kid yourself. I mean, when we had the woman on from Altitude to talk about Bruce Brown from Denver, I mean, she talked about Indianapolis, remember? And she's like, well, keep in mind, I went to college in Bloomington, Illinois, so I know what it's like over there. I mean, Bloomington, Illinois is literally in the middle of a cornfield. That's the perception of Indianapolis still. Maybe not as much so as it once was, but that's there. there is that element of it. But I think the bigger challenge in the for the Pacers in getting players here, quite frankly, is this simple. And that is... When you play in the NBA, you know that whatever city you're playing for, you are moving there in early October and leaving in April. 
So that means November, December, January, February. Uh, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philly, for that matter. I think people are like, I don't want to go somewhere where I don't see the sun and it's 10 degrees. I think that's the number one obstacle. And then there are certainly other cultural aspects of Indianapolis that might hold itself back a little bit. But so I, 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 under, I believe what Paul George is saying there. Look, the challenge was getting other guys to come here just because the elite levels are going to go to, and what did he say? Phoenix, Miami, Los Angeles. What do they all have in common? They're culturally diverse and the, the weather's beautiful. Yeah, I will be really interested over the next handful of years, the presence of Halliburton and what can that do? You know, how big of a pro is that for guys in viewing this as a, poten- a potential destination? You know, it's going to be one weekend out of the year, and it certainly is not the norm. But, you know, does the All Star game coming up in February, does that change, you know, what that perception looks like? But I think kind of getting away from that debate, which obviously is a debate that we have on an annual basis about the Pacers when it comes to free agency and things like that, I do think, again, Pacers fans would enjoy listening to that podcast. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good back and forth. They get into a lot of other things that are not just necessarily like Indiana centric. I mean, certainly there's more Pacers talk with that, but you know, both of them kind of sharing. I thought it was a really funny back and forth. Both of them being like, "Okay, what what is your biggest weakness on the basketball floor? Like, what can you not do?" Paul George is talking about how when he jumps, he can only go off of like a, a certain leg uh, pattern, if you will. Like, like he he's got. A, he says he's not a natural jumper off both legs. Um, I found that to be interesting. Halliburton was like, I feel like I'm incapable of playing slow. And yeah, I guess maybe that's not the biggest weakness in the world. You look at the Pacers last year, their transition was right up there with anybody in the league. Uh, Paul had a great Larry Bird story. You know, one of those stories of, you know, Larry's dressed in, you know, slacks and a button down shirt. And Paul says he's never seen him shoot a basketball in his life. And next thing you know, the ball rolls over to Larry in the corner. Larry fires up a three, it goes in, swish, and just walks out of the gym. And Paul's just sitting there in awe of like, oh my gosh, that's why he is one of the greatest of all time. So um, I thought it was a fun, uh, pretty much two hours of the podcast there. And and I, maybe time is healing it, Jake, but I, I don't know. I feel like some Pacers fans have maybe softened a little bit on their stance of Paul George. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think George and Halliburton have something in common. And in Halliburton, so we'll focus on the Halliburton side of it. You know, I think people think Paul George is from L.A. I mean, he's from far suburban outside of L.A. And Fresno, he went to Fresno State. Fresno's like, you know, I mean, that's has really, the state is the only thing that gets shares with Los Angeles. But Tyrese Halliburton, like when I talked to him, what did he say? Look, I'm from a town that's smaller than most, you know, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I know he's born in Milwaukee, but he grew up in Oshkosh, went to high school in Oshkosh, went to college in Iowa. This is not a guy that yeah, is used to the glitz and glamour. Right. So being off the radar is going to be, not off the radar, but you know what I mean, being in a city that doesn't have the media spotlight. Reggie Miller craved that media spotlight, and yet he managed to get it here for 18 years. I've always said, people that say that you can't get media endorsements and dollars in Indianapolis need to realize the most advertised athlete and marketed athlete in professional sports of the mid-2000s was Peyton Manning when he was the the quarterback of the Colts. It can be done if you're a star. Pacers' final summer league, I guess, regular season game coming up tonight. That is a 7 o'clock tip against the Mavs. They should have one more game this weekend. Again, expect a whole lot of run for those rookies. We'll see if Jairus Walker continues to play. I assume he'll play another game, but if I'm not mistaken, I think Benedict Matherin didn't play the entire summer league schedule last year. Obviously, Ben Shepard, Isaiah Wong, Oscar Shibway, some of those other guys 
getting more run for the Pacers here to close out Summer League. All right, on the other side, we'll talk to Greg Gregshaw, get his thoughts on the Canaan Catchings, Canaan catching situation and more. We'll do that with Rank next here. Kevin Aquari, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan.